0: Chapter 7 of the Smuggler by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 To a very hungry man, it matters not much what is put upon the table, so that it be eatable. But with the intellectual appetite, the case is different, and every one is anxious to know who is to be his companion, or what is to be in his book. Now, Sir Edward Digby was somewhat of an epicure in human character and he always felt as great a curiosity to enjoy any new personage brought before him as the more ordinary Epicure desires to taste a new dish. He was equally refined, too, in regards to the taste of his intellectual food. He liked a good deal of flavour, but not too much. A soupçon of something, he did not well know what, in a man's demeanour, gave it great zest, as a soupçon or two of three condiments, so blended in a salmi, as to defy analysis must have charmed Vattle. And, to say the truth, the little he had seen or heard of the house in which he now was, together with his knowledge of some of its antecedents, had awakened a great desire for a farther taste of its quality. When he went downstairs then and opened the dining-room door, his eye naturally ran round in search of the new guests. Only two, however, had arrived, in the first of whom he recognised Mr. Zachary Croyland. The other was a venerable-looking old man in black, whom he could not conceive to be Mr. Radford, from the previous account which he had heard of that respectable gentleman's character. It turned out, however, that the person before him, who had been omitted by Sir Robert Croyland in the enumeration of his expected visitors, was the clergyman of the neighbouring village, and, being merely a plain good man of very excellent sense, but neither rich, noble, nor thrifty, was nobody in the opinion of the baronet. As soon as Sir Edward Digby appeared, Sir Mr. Zachary Croyland, with his back tall, straight and stiff as a poker, advanced towards him and shook him cordially by the hand. "'Welcome, welcome, my young friend,' he said. "'You've kept your word, I see, and that's a good sign of any man, especially when he knows that there's neither pleasure, profit, nor popularity to be gained by so doing.' "'and I'm sure there's none of either to be had in this remote corner of the world. "'You have some object, of course, in coming among us, "'for every man has an object, but what it is I can't divine.' "'A very great object indeed, my dear sir,' replied the young officer with a smile. "'I wish to cultivate an acquaintance of an old friend of my father's, "'your brother here, who was kind enough to invite me.' "'Very unprofitable sort of plant to cultivate,' answered Mr. Croyland in a voice quite loud enough to be heard by the whole room. It won't pay tillage, I should think. But you know your own affairs best. Here, Edith, my love, I must make you better acquainted with my young fellow traveller. Doubtless he is perfectly competent to talk as much nonsense to you as any other young man about town, and has imported, for the express benefit of the young ladies in the country, all the sweet things and pretty speeches last in vogue. But he can, in saner moments, and if you just let him know that you are not quite a fool, bestow upon you some small portion of common sense, which he has picked up, heaven knows how. He couldn't have it by descent, for he is an eldest son, and that portion of the family property is always reserved for the younger children. Mrs. Barbara Croyland, who found that her brother Zachary was riding his horse somewhat hard, moved across the room. "'with the superfluity of whalebone which she had in her stays, "'crackling at every step, as if expressly to attract attention. "'And laying her hand on Mr. Croyland's arm, she whispered, "'Now do, brother, be a little civil and kind. "'There's no use of hurting people's feelings, "'and if Robert hasn't as much sense as you, "'there's no use you should always be telling him so.' Push nonsense!' cried Mr. Croyland. "'Hold your tongue, Bab. "'You're a good soul as ever lived.' but a great fool into the bargain, so don't meddle. I should think you have burnt your fingers enough with it by this time. And I'm sure you're a good soul too, if you would but let people know it,' replied Mrs. Barbara, anxious to soften and keep down all the little oddities and asperities of her family circle in the eyes of Sir Edward Digby. But she only showed them the more by doing so, for Mr. Croyland was not to be caught by honey. And besides, the character which she, in her simplicity, thought fit to attribute to him, was the very last upon the face of the earth which he coveted. Every man has his vanity, and it is an imp that takes an infinite variety of different forms, frequently the most hideous or the most absurd. Now Mr. Croyland's vanity lay in his oddity and acerbity. There was nothing on earth which he considered so foolish as good nature, and he was heartily ashamed of the large portion with which heaven had endowed him. "'I, a good soul!' he exclaimed. "'Let me tell you, Bab, you are very much mistaken in that, as in every other thing you say or do. I am nothing more nor less than a very cross, ill-tempered old man, and you know it quite well, if you wouldn't be a hypocrite.' "'Well, I do believe you are,' said the lady, with her own particular vanity mortified into a state of irritation, "'and the only way is to let you alone.' While this conversation had been passing between brother and sister, Sir Edward Digby, taking advantage of the position in which they stood, and which masked his own operations from the rest of the party, bent down to speak a few words to Edith, who, whatever they were, looked up with a smile, faint and thoughtful indeed, but still expressing as much cheerfulness as her countenance ever showed. The topic which he spoke upon might be commonplace, but what he said was said with grace, and had a degree of originality in it, mingled with courtliness and propriety of expression, which at once awakened attention and repaid it. It was not strong beer, it was not strong spirit, but it was like some delicate kind of wine, which has more power than the fineness of the flavour suffers to be apparent at the first taste. Their conversation was not long, however, for by the time that the young gentleman and lady had exchanged a few sentences, and Mr. Croyland had finished his discussion with his sister, the name of Mr. Radford was announced, and Sir Edward Digby turned quickly round to examine the appearance of the newcomer. As he did so, however, his eye fell for a moment upon the countenance of Edith Croyland, and he thought he remarked an expression of anxiety, not unmingled with pain. "'till the door closed after admitting a single figure, "'when a look of relief brightened her face "'and she gave a glance across the room to her sister. "'The younger girl instantly rose, "'and while her father was busy receiving Mr Radford "'with somewhat profuse attention, "'she gracefully crossed the room "'and, seating herself by Edith, "'laid her hand upon her sister's, "'whispering something to her with a kindly look. "'Sir Edward Digby marked it all and liked it, for there is something in the bottom of man's heart which has always a sympathy with affection. But he nevertheless did not fail to take a complete survey of the personage who entered, and whom I must now present to the reader somewhat more distinctly than I could do by the moonlight. Mr. Richard Radford was a tall, thin, but large-boned man, with dark eyes and overhanging, shaggy brows, a hook nose considerably depressed towards the point, a mouth somewhat wide and teeth very fine for his age though somewhat straggling and shark-like his hair was very thick and apparently coarse his arms long and powerful and his legs notwithstanding the meagerness of his body furnished with very respectable calves on the whole he was a striking but not a prepossessing person and there was a look of keenness and cupidity we might almost say veracity in his eye with a bend in the brow which would have given the observer an idea of great quickness of intellect and decision of character, if it had not been for a certain degree of weakness about the partly opened mouth, which seemed to be in opposition to the latter characteristic. He was dressed in the height of the mode, with large buckles in his shoes and smaller ones at his knees, a light dress-sword hanging not ungracefully by his side, and a profusion of lace and embroidery about his apparel. Mr. Radford replied to the courtesies of Sir Robert Croyland with perfect self-possession. One might almost call it self-sufficiency, but with no grace and some stiffness. He was then introduced in form to Sir Edward Digby, bowing low, if that could be called a bow, which was merely an inclination of the rigid spine, from a perpendicular position to an angle of forty-five with the horizon. The young officer's demeanour formed a very striking contrast with that of his new acquaintance, not much in favour of the latter. But he showed that, as Mr. Croyland had predicated of him, he was quite prepared to say a great many courteous nothings in a very civil and obliging tone. Mr. Radford declared himself delighted at the honour of making his acquaintance, and Sir Edward pronounced himself charmed at the opportunity of meeting him. "'Mr. Radford hoped that he was going to honour their poor place "'for a considerable length of time, "'and Sir Edward felt sure that the beauty of such scenery "'and the delights of such society "'would be the cause of much pain to him "'when he was compelled to tear himself away. "'A low but merry laugh from behind him "'caused both the gentlemen to turn their heads, "'and they found the sparkling eyes of Zara Croyland fixed upon them. "'She instantly dropped her eyelids,' "'however, and coloured a little at being detected. "'It was evident enough that she had been weighing the compliments she heard "'and estimating them at their right value, "'which made Mr Radford look somewhat angry, "'but elicited nothing from Sir Edward Digby "'but a gay glance at the beautiful little culprit "'which she caught even through the thick lashes of her downcast eyes "'and which served to reassure her. "'Sir Robert Croyland himself was displeased.' "'But Zara was in a degree a spoiled child "'and had established for herself a privilege of doing what she liked, unscolded. "'To turn the conversation, therefore, Sir Robert, in a tone of great regard, inquired particularly after his young friend, Richard, "'and said he hoped that they were to have the pleasure of seeing him. "'I trust so, I trust so, Sir Robert,' replied Mr Radford, "'but you know I am totally unacquainted with his movements.' He had gone away upon some business, the servants told me, and I waited as long as I could for him. But I did not choose to keep your dinner, Sir Robert, and if he does not choose to come in time, the young dog must go without. Pray do not stop a moment for him. "'Business?' muttered Mr. Croyland, "'either cheating the King's revenue or making love to a milkmaid, I'll answer for him.' But the remark passed unnoticed, for Sir Robert Croyland— who was always anxious to drown his brother's somewhat too pertinent observations, without giving the Nabob any offence, was loudly pressing Mr Radford to let them wait for half an hour in order to give time for the young gentleman's arrival. His father, however, would not hear of such a proceeding, and the bell was rung and dinner ordered. It was placed upon the table with great expedition, and the party moved towards the dining-room, Mr. Radford handed in the baronet's sister, who was, to say the truth, an enigma to him, for he himself could form no conception of her good nature, simplicity and kindness, and consequently thought that all the mischief she occasionally caused must originate in well-concealed spite, which gave him a great reverence for her character. Sir Edward Digby, notwithstanding a hint from Sir Robert to take in his youngest daughter, advanced to Miss Croyland and secured her, as he thought, himself, while the brother of the master of the house followed with the fair Zara, leaving the clergyman and Sir Robert to come together. By a manoeuvre on the part of Edith, however, favoured by her father, but nearly frustrated by the busy spirit of her aunt, Miss Croyland got placed between Sir Robert and the clergyman, while the youngest daughter of the house was seated by Sir Edward Digby, leaving a chair vacant between herself and her worthy parent for young Radford, when he should arrive. All this being arranged to the satisfaction of everybody but Sir Edward Digby, Grace was said, after a not very decent hint from Sir Robert Coyland, that it ought not to be too long, and the dinner commenced with the usual attack upon soup and fish. It must not be supposed, however, because we have ventured to say that the arrangement was not to the satisfaction of Sir Edward Digby, that the young baronet was at all disinclined to enjoy his pretty little friend's society, nearer than the opposite side of the table nor must it be imagined that his sage reflections in regard to keeping himself out of danger had at all made a coward of the gallant soldier the truth is he had a strong desire to study edith croyland not on account of any benefit which that study could be of to himself but with other motives and views which upon the whole were very laudable he wished to see into her mind and by those slight indications which were all he could expect her to display but which, nevertheless, to a keen observer, often tell a history better than a whole volume of details, to ascertain some facts in regard to which he took a considerable interest. Being somewhat eager in his way, and not knowing how long he might find it either convenient or safe to remain in his present quarters, he had determined to commence the campaign as soon as possible. But, frustrated in his first attack, he determined to change his plan of operations and besiege the fair Zara as one of the enemy's outworks. He accordingly laughed and talked with her upon almost every subject in the world during the first part of dinner, skilfully leading her up to the pursuits of her sister and herself in the country, in order to obtain a clear knowledge of their habits and course of proceeding, that he might take advantage of it at an after period for purposes of his own. The art of conversation, when properly regarded, forms a regular system of tactics in which, notwithstanding the various manoeuvres of your adversary and the desultory fire kept up by indifferent persons around, you still endeavour to carry the line of advance in the direction that you wish, and to frustrate every effort to turn it towards any point that may not be agreeable to you, rallying it here, giving it a bend there, presenting a sharp angle at one place, an obtuse one at another and raising from time to time a barrier or a breastwork for the purpose of preventing the adverse force from turning your flank and getting into your rear. But the mischief was, in the present instance, that Sir Edward Digby's breastworks were too low for such an active opponent as Zara Croyland. They might have appeared a formidable obstacle in the way of a scientific opponent— But with all the rash valour of youth which is so frequently successful where practice and experience fail, she walked straight up and jumped over them, taking one line after another, till Sir Edward Digby found that she had nearly got into the heart of his camp. It was all so easy and natural, however, so gay and cheerful, that he could not feel mortified even at his own want of success. And though five times she darted away from the subject and began to talk of other things, he still renewed it, expatiating upon the pleasures of a country life, and upon how much more rational as well as agreeable it was when compared to the amusements and whirl of the town. Mr. Zachary Croyland indeed cut across them often, listening to what they said and sometimes smiling significantly at Sir Edward Digby, or at other times replying himself to what either of the two thought fit to discourse upon. Thus, then, when the young baronet was discanting sagely of the pleasures of the country, as compared with those of the town, good Mr. Croyland laughed merrily, saying, "'You will soon have enough of it, Sir Edward, or else you are only deceiving that poor foolish girl. For what have you to do with the country, you who have lived the best part of your life in cities and amongst its denizens? I dare say, if the truth were told now, you would give a guinea to be walking up the Mall.' "'instead of sitting down here, in this old, crumbling, crazy house, "'speaking courteous nonsense to a pretty little milkmaid?' "'Indeed, my dear sir, you are very much mistaken,' replied Sir Edward gravely. "'You judge all men by yourself, and because you are fond of cities "'and the busy haunts of men, you think I must be so too.' "'I, fond of cities and the busy haunts of men?' "'cried Mr. Croyland, in a tone of high indignation.' but a laugh that ran round the table, and in which even the worthy clergyman joined, showed the old gentleman that he had been taken in by Sir Edward's quietly-spoken jest. And, at the same time, his brother exclaimed, still laughing, "'He hit you fairly there, Zachary. He has found out the full extent of your love for your fellow-creatures already.' "'Well, I forgive him, I forgive him,' said Mr. Croyland with more good humour than might have been expected." I have forgotten that I had told him, four or five days ago, my hatred for all cities, and especially for that great mound of greedy Emmets, which, unfortunately, is the capital of this country. I declare I never go into that vast den of iniquity, and mingle with the stream of wretched-looking things that call themselves human, which all its doors are hourly vomiting forth, but they put me in mind of the white ants in India, Just the same squalid-looking, active and voracious vermin as themselves, running over everything that obstructs them and intruding themselves everywhere, destroying everything that comes in their way, and acting as an incessant torment to everyone within reach. Certainly the white ants are the less venomous of the two races and somewhat prettier to look at, but still there's a wonderful resemblance. "'I don't at all approve of your calling me a milkmaid, uncle,' said Zara, shaking her small, delicate finger at Mr. Croyland across the table. "'It's very wrong and ungrateful of you. "'See if ever I milk your cow for you again.' "'Then I'll milk it myself, my dear,' replied Mr. Croyland with a good-humoured smile at his fair niece. "'You cannot! You cannot!' cried Zara. "'Fancy, Sir Edward, what a picture it made "'when one day I went over to my uncle's and found him with a frightful-looking black man in a turban, whom he brought over from heaven knows where, trying to milk a cow he had just bought, and neither of them able to manage it. My uncle was kneeling upon his cocked hat amongst the long grass, looking, as he acknowledges, like a kangaroo. The cow had got one of her feet in the pail, kicking it most violently, and the black man with a white turban round his head was upon both his knees before her, "'beseeching her in some heathen language to be quiet. "'It was the finest sight I ever saw, "'and would have made a beautiful picture of the worship of the cow, "'which is, as I am told, customary in the country "'where both the gentlemen came from.' "'Zara, my dear Zara!' cried Mrs. Barbara, "'who was frightened to death lest her niece "'should deprive herself of all share in Mr. Croyland's fortune.' You really should not tell such a story of your uncle. But the worthy gentleman himself was laughing till the tears ran down his cheeks. It's quite true, it's quite true, he exclaimed, and she did milk the cow, though we couldn't. The ill-tempered devil was as quiet as a lamb with her, though she is so vicious with every male thing that I have actually been obliged to have a woman in the cottage within a hundred yards of the house for the express purpose of milking her. That's what you should have done at first," said Mr. Radford, putting down the fork with which he had been diligently devouring a large plateful of fish, "instead of having nothing but men about you, you should have none but your coachman and footman and all the rest women." "I and married my cook-maid," replied Mr. Croyland sarcastically. Sir Robert Croyland looked down into his plate with a quivering lip and a heavy brow, as if he did not know well whether to laugh or be angry. The clergyman smiled. Mr. Radford looked furious, but said nothing, and Mrs. Barbara exclaimed, "'Oh, brother, you should not say such things, and besides there are many cook-maids who are very nice, pretty, respectable people.' "'Well, sister, I'll think of it,' said Mr. Croyland dryly, but with a good deal of fun twinkling in the corners of his eyes. It was too much for the light-heart of Zara Croyland, and holding down her head she laughed outright— although she knew that Mr. Radford had placed himself in the predicament of which her uncle spoke, though he had been relieved of the immediate consequences for some years. What would have been the result is difficult to say, for Mr. Radford was waxing rough, but at that moment the door was flung hastily open, and a young gentleman entered of some three or four and twenty years of age, bearing a strong resemblance to Mr. Radford, though undoubtedly of a much more pleasant and graceful appearance. He was well dressed, and his coat, lined with white silk of the finest texture, was cast negligently back from his chest, with an air of carelessness which was to be traced in all the rest of his apparel. Everything he wore was as good as it could be, and everything became him, for he was well formed, and his movements were free and even graceful. But everything seemed to have been thrown on in a hurry, and his hair floated wild and straggling round his brow. "'as if neither comb nor brush had touched it for many hours. "'It might have been supposed that this sort of disarray "'proceeded from haste when he found himself too late and his father gone, "'but there was an expression of reckless indifference about his face "'which led Sir Edward Digby to imagine that this apparent negligence "'was the habitual characteristic of his mind, "'rather than the effect of any accidental circumstance.' His air was quite self-possessed, though hurried, and a flashing glance of his eye round the table, resting for a moment longer on Sir Edward Digby than on anyone else, seemed directed to ascertain whether the party assembled was one that pleased him before he chose to sit down to the board with them. He made no apology to Sir Robert Coyland for being too late, but shook hands with the man in return for the very cordial welcome he met with and then seated himself in the vacant chair, nodding to Miss Croyland familiarly, and receiving a cold inclination of the head in return. One of the servants inquired if he would take soup and fish, but he replied abruptly, ''No, bring me fish, no soup, I hate such messes.'' In the meantime, by one of those odd terms, which sometimes take place in conversation, Mr. Croyland, the clergyman, and Mr. Radford himself were once more talking together the latter having apparently overcome his indignation at the Nabob's tart rejoinder, in the hope and expectation of saying something still more biting to him in return. Like many a great general, however, he had not justly appreciated the power of his adversary, as compared with his own strength. Mr. Croyland, soured at an early period of life, had acquired by long practice and experience a habit of repartee, when his prejudices or his opinions and they are very different things were assailed which was overpowering a large fund of natural kindness and good humour formed a curious substratum for the acerbity which had accumulated above it and his love of a joke would often show itself in a hearty peal of laughter even at his own expense when the attack upon him was made in a good spirit by one for whom he had any affection or esteem But if he despised or disliked his assailant, as was the case with Mr. Radford, the bitterest possible retort was sure to be given in the fewest possible words. In order to lead away from the obnoxious subject, the clergyman returned to Mr. Croyland's hatred of London, saying, not very advisedly, perhaps, just as young Mr. Radford entered, "'I cannot imagine, my dear sir, why you have such an animosity to our magnificent capital,' "'and to all that it contains, "'especially when we all know "'you to be as beneficent "'to individuals as you are severe "'upon the species collectively.' "'My dear Cruden, "'you only make a mess of it,' "'replied Mr. Coyland. "'The reason why I do sometimes "'befriend a poor scoundrel "'whom I happen to know "'is because it is less pleasant for me "'to see a rascal suffer "'than to do what's just by him. "'I have no will and no power "'to punish all the villainy I see.' "'otherwise my arm would be tired enough of flogging in this county of Kent. "'But I do not understand why I should be called upon "'to like a great agglomeration of blackguards in a city "'when I can have the same diluted in the country. "'Here we have about a hundred scoundrels to the square mile. "'In London we have a hundred to the square yard. "'Don't you think, sir, that they may be but the worst scoundrels in the country "'because they are fewer?' demanded Mr Radford. I am beginning to fancy so, answered Mr. Croyland dryly. But I suppose in London the number makes up for the want of intensity. Well, it's a very fine city, rejoined Mr. Radford. The emporium of the world, the nurse of arts and sciences, the birthplace and the theatre of all that is great and majestic in the efforts of human intellect. And equally of all that is base and vile, answered his opponent it is the place to which all smuggled goods naturally tend radford every unaccustomed spirit every prohibited wear physical and intellectual there finds its mart. and the chief art that is practiced is to cheat as cleverly as may be the chief science learnt is how to defraud without being detected we are improving in the country daily daily but we have not reached the skill of london yet "'Men make large fortunes in the country in a few years "'by merely cheating the customs, "'but in London they make large fortunes in a few months "'by cheating everybody.' "'So they do in India,' replied Mr Radford, "'who thought he had hit the tender place.' "'True, true!' cried Mr Croyland. "'And then we go and set up for country gentlemen and cheat still.' "'What rogues we are, Radford, eh? "'I see you know the world.' it is very well for me to say i made all my money by curing men not by robbing them never you believe it my good friend it is not in human nature is it no no tell that to the marines no man ever made a fortune but by plunder that's a certain fact the course of sir robert croyland's dinner party seemed to promise very pleasantly at this juncture but sir edward digby though somewhat amused was not himself fond of sharp words and had some compassion upon the ladies at the table. He therefore stepped in, and without seeming to have noticed that there was anything passing between Mr. Radford and the brother of his host, except the most delicate courtesies, he contrived, by some well-directed questions in regard to India, to give Mr. Croyland an inducement to deviate from the sarcastic into the expatiative, and sent him cantering upon one of his hobbies. He left him to finish his excursion, and returned to a conversation which had been going on, between him and the fair Zara, in somewhat of a low tone, though not so low as to show any mutual design of keeping it from the ears of those around. Young Radford had, in the meantime, been making up for the loss of time occasioned by his absence in the commencement of dinner, and he seemed undoubtedly to have a prodigious appetite. Not a word passed from either father to son or son to father, and a stranger might have supposed them in no degree related to each other. Indeed, the young gentleman had hitherto spoken to nobody but the servant, and while his mouth was employed in eating, his quick, large eyes were directed to every face round the table in succession, making several more tours than the first investigating glance, which I have already mentioned, and every time stopping longer at the countenance of Sir Edward Digby than anywhere else. He now, however, seemed inclined to take part in that officer's conversation with the youngest Miss Croyland, and did not appear quite pleased to find her attention so completely engrossed by a stranger. To Edith he vouchsafed not a single word, but hearing the fair lady next to him reply to something which Sir Edward Digby had said, "'Oh, we go out once or twice almost every day, sometimes on horseback, but more frequently to take a walk,' he exclaimed. "'Do you indeed, Miss Zara? Why, I never meet you, and I am always running about the country. How is that, I wonder?' Zara smiled and replied, with an arch look, "'Because fortune befriends us, I suppose, Mr. Radford.' But then, well knowing that he was not one likely to take a jest in good part, she added, "'We don't go out to meet anybody, and therefore we always take those paths where we are least likely to do so.' Still young Radford did not seem half to like her reply, but nevertheless he went on in the same tone continually interrupting her conversation with Sir Edward Digby, and endeavouring, after a long fashion, not at all uncommon, to make himself agreeable by preventing people from following the course they are inclined to pursue. The young baronet rather humoured him than otherwise, for he wished to see as deeply as possible into his character. He asked him to drink wine with him. He spoke to him once or twice without being called upon to do so, for he was somewhat amused to see that the fair Zara was a good deal annoyed at the encouragement he gave to her companion on the left to join in their conversation. He was soon satisfied, however, in regard to the young man's mind and character. Richard Radford had evidently received what is called a good education, which is in fact no education at all. He had been taught a great many things, he knew a good deal, but that which really and truly constitutes education was totally wanting. He had not learned how to make use of that which he had acquired, either for his own benefit or for that of society. He had been instructed, not educated, and there is the greatest possible difference between the two. He was shrewd enough, but selfish and conceited to a high degree, with a sufficient portion of pride to be offensive, and sufficient vanity to be irritable. With all the wilfulness of a spoiled child, and with that confusion of ideas in regard to plain right and wrong, which is always consequent upon the want of moral training and overindulgence in youth. To judge from his own conversation, the whole end and aim of his life seemed to be excitement. He spoke of field thoughts with pleasure, but the degree of satisfaction which he derived from each appeared to be always in proportion to the danger, the activity, and the fierceness. Hunting he liked better than shooting, shooting than fishing— "'which latter, he declared, was only tolerable "'because there was nothing else to be done in the spring of the year. "'But upon the pleasures of the chase he would dilate largely, "'and he told several anecdotes of striking a magnificent horse here "'and breaking the back of another there, "'till poor Zara had turned somewhat pale "'and begged him to desist from such themes. "'I cannot think how men can be so barbarous,' she said. "'Their whole pleasure seems to consist in torturing poor animals or killing them.' Young Radford laughed. "'What were they made for?' he asked. "'To be used by man, I think, not to be tortured by him,' the young lady replied. "'No torture at all,' said her companion on the left. "'The horse takes as much pleasure in running after the hounds as I do, "'and if he breaks his back or I break my neck, it's our own fault.' We have nobody to thank for it but ourselves. The very chance of killing oneself gives additional pleasure, and when one pushes a horse at a leap, the best fun of the whole is the thought whether he will be able by any possibility to clear it or not. If it were not for hunting, and one or two other things of the sort, there would be nothing left for an English gentleman, but to go to Italy and put himself at the head of a party of banditti. That must be glorious work. "'Don't you think, Mr. Radford?' asked Sir Edward Digby, "'that active service in the army might offer equal excitement "'and a more honourable field?' "'Oh, dear, no!' cried the young man. "'A life of slavery compared with a life of freedom, "'to be drilled and commanded and made a mere machine of "'and sent about reliving guards and pickets "'and doing everything that one is told like a schoolboy. "'I would not go into the army for the world!' I'm sure if I did, I should shoot my commanding officer within a month. Then I would advise you not, answered the young baronet, for after the shooting there would be another step to be taken which would not be quite so pleasant. Oh, you mean the hanging, cried young Radford, laughing, but I would take care they should never hang me, for I could shoot myself as easily as I could shoot him, and I have a great dislike to strangulation. It's one of the few sorts of death that would not please me. "'Come, come, Richard,' said Sir Robert Croyland in a nervous and displeased tone. "'Let us talk of some other subject. "'You will frighten the ladies from the table before the cloth is off.' "'It is very odd,' said young Radford in a low voice to Sir Edward Digby "'without making any reply to the master of the house. "'It is very odd how frightened old men are at the very name of death "'when at the best they can have but two or three years to live.' The young officer did not reply but turned the conversation to other things and the wine having been liberally supplied operated as it usually does at the point where its use stops short of excess in making glad the heart of man and the conclusion of the dinner was much more cheerful and placable than the commencement. The ladies retired within a few minutes after the dessert was set upon the table and it soon became evident to Sir Edward Digby that the process of deep drinking, so disagreeably common in England at that time, was about to commence. He was by no means incapable of bearing as potent libations as most men, for occasionally, in those days, it was scarcely possible to escape excess without giving mortal offence to your entertainer, but it was by no means either his habit or his inclination so to indulge, and for this evening, especially, he was anxious to escape.' He looked, therefore, across the table to Mr. Croyland for relief, and that gentleman, clearly understanding what he meant, gave him a slight nod and finished his first glass of wine after dinner. The bottles passed round again, and Mr. Croyland took his second glass, but after that he rose without calling much attention, a proceeding which was habitual with him. When, however, Sir Edward Digby followed his example, there was a general outcry. Everyone declared it was too bad— and Sir Robert said, in a somewhat mortified tone, that he feared his wine was not so good as that to which his guest had been accustomed. "'It is only too good, my dear sir,' replied the young baronet, determined to cut the matter short, at once and for ever. "'So good, indeed, that I have been induced to take two more glasses than I usually indulge in, and I consequently feel somewhat heated and uncomfortable. I shall go and refresh myself by a walk through the woods.' Several more efforts were made to induce him to stay, but he was resolute in his course, and Mr. Croyland also came to his aid, exclaiming, Pooh nonsense, Robert! Let every man do as he likes! "'Have not I heard you a thousand times call your house Liberty Hall? "'A pretty sort of liberty, indeed, if a man must get beastly drunk because you choose to do so!' "'I do not intend to do any such thing, brother,' replied Sir Robert, somewhat sharply. And, in the meanwhile, during this discussion, Sir Edward Digby made his escape from the room. End of Chapter Seven.